Chapter number 27, Mr. Wicker's Window by Carly Dawson. This is LibriVox recording. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Arthur Pientadosi. A mouse streaked out of the door of the captain's cabin and did not stop until it reached the farther end of the vulture, where it hid quaking behind someone's old shoe. The little creature, quieting down at last and feeling its heart regain a more familiar rhythm, sniffed distastefully at the shoe. It was plain to see, it thought, that the vulture was an untidy, ill-cared-for ship. Old shoes were never left lying about in the Mirabelle. The thought of the Mirabelle brought Chris's mission on the pirate ship into sharper focus. He glanced up at the sky. There was little time left in which to work safely, for Claggett Chew's sharp eyes had noticed the infinitesimal scar in his cheek, and his astute brain had put two and two together. Chris wondered with a start of horror if Claggett Chew could read his thoughts, and if this was why he had stared at him with such intensity. Well, he shrugged. He knew what had to be done, and if he looked quickly, and Claggett Chew's swoon lasted long enough... Not even he could stop him. Looking about to make sure he was unobserved, he took his own shape again with a sigh of relief. It was almost like holding one's breath for long periods of time to be in the shape of a bird or a mouse. But to be himself, he knew, held even greater dangers. For the first time, he opened the leather bag in his neck and felt inside, the first thing his fingers closed on as he pulled out. He turned the object in his palm toward the starlight to see what it might be. It was a folding knife in a case of tortoise shell inlaid with strange signs of silver and mother of pearl. Chris opened it. The blade was razor sharp and put it experimentally point down on the point of the deck. As if by itself, the blade revolved with intense speed, sinking in so fast that only just in time did Chris snatch it out and hold it more tightly. Trying it out, he found that the blade would go through anything. Time so easily as the scarcely seemed to cut, leaving no trace of a mark, it was so keen. At other times, when he pressed it on it, the blade whirled around, boring a hole as did it be necessary. What a useful gadget, Chris thought. This is just what I need, and now is the time, he said to himself, and sprang up the nearest of Dilcher's three masts. What he had to do would take long, and there was little time left that night in which to do it. Marie intended slitting the medicines of rigging here and there, not so deeply that they would give way at once and be soon repaired, but so that with the first hard blow the lines would break. The growing daylight should have warned him long before he was done, for Chris wished also to slit the sails very slightly when they had been re-unfurled and the vulture was underway. The sounds of voices broke his absorption in his task. Looking down from the top of the mainmast where he clung, Chris saw a boatload of returning sailors and realized with a start that it was nearly sunup. In a moment, the, a rat ran down the mast to disappear into the foul-smelling hold of the pirate vessel. How long must he wait in the hold, Chris wondered. Although he might be in the shape of a rat, it was only his outward form that had changed. He could not eat grain or refuse that was not suitable for a human. He did not relish having his to hold his own in a fight with the true rat, there in the darkness. He contemplated boring a hole in the hull of the vulture, but decided to wait until the ship was under sail. He bitterly regretted not having brought food with him. Feeling hungry after his exertions about the ship, there was nothing else for it but to tie it as safely as he could in his own shape. This he did, after a thorough search in his rat form, to find what seemed a safe, hidden place high on the top of a pile of the loot stolen from the merchantman. 
There, the exhausted boy, curled close to the city's sudden movement of the ship, fell into a sound sleep. The dip and sway of a sailing ship cutting the seas and a ravenous appetite combined to wake Chris. For the first few moments he was confused as to where he was. Little or no light seeped into the hold, and he was further troubled by having no idea how long he might have slept. His first thought was to find food. Climbing down from his sleeping place, he felt his way back to the ladder leading up to the deck. The hatch at the top of the ladder was open, and through it came a long, faded shaft of light and a freshening draught of air. By the quality of the light, Chris judged the time to be well along in the afternoon. He was debating with himself whether it might not or change the shape and ventured up to find something to eat, when on one of the lower treads of the plank ladder he stood side of a plate of food. Chris stopped staring at it for a moment. <laughs> His mouth watered, for he had not eaten in many hours, and the sight of meat, bread, and fruit was almost more than he could resist. But resisted he did, for he argued in himself. If this has been put here, it must be for me. If it is for me, it may well be poisoned. I shall not be tempted, nor as Chew would like me to be. He therefore left the plate of food where it was, hoping the rats would find it long and he would have proof through their actions, whether or not his theory was right. There, in a shadow fell over the hatch far above his head. Chris hastily became a fly, soaring up to hit Simon Gosler on the nose. Crawling in a leisurely fashion on the beggar's hump, he lingered long enough to see what the cripple was about. Simon was looking down the steep ladder. Shading his roomy eyes against the brilliance of a setting sun with one filthy, crooked hand, Chris crawled nearer could make out what the old man was muttering under his breath. The captain, he says, go down and see. Is the food at up, says he. But tis a leery hard way for a poor old cripple to hop down that steep ladder. I'll not do it. He's a sick and fevered man. I'll say it was at up. The rats will have got it before I get to his cabin, by any case. And then who's the wiser? Besides, there's no boy on this ship. What a fancy, he muttered. He is an ill man, his claggot shoe. May his bones rot! I need do no more for him than what I have a mind to, leaving as many of his misdeeds as I do. Ah! He moved his hands in anticipation. Any day, Simon Gosler could be captain of the good vulture, and as he says the word to the right quarter. His eyes, no longer hidden behind black patches, narrowed with cunning. And in the meantime, who gets the best share of the spoils? The beggar broke off in a cackle of glee, rubbing his dirty, gnarled hands with satisfaction, and turning away to go back to the captain's cabin with his message. Chris flew away in the direction of the cook's galley, where, as a fly, he found it easy enough to eat his fill of meat and what few good things the ultra afforded. Refreshed, he flew hard against the wind in order not to be blown off the ship entirely. Up to the safety of the part of the rigging, there he could ponder on what he had seen and hear what there was to be seen. Tahiti seemed to have been left far behind, for the vulture was well out to sea, and no smallest cloud on the horizon gave any hint of distant land. The sailors had set the sails, and a good breeze filled the black canvas of the pirate ship. The pirates themselves still hurt Surlia from having eaten and drunk too much after the day of the day before. 
more quarrelsome and tired and lay about in sprawling groups in the, on the deck far below. Looking aft, I saw Simon Gosler hobbling from the captain's cabin and Osterbridge Hawsey's graceful, overdressed figure outlined in the doorway. On an impulse, Chris flew down to hear what they were saying. I thank you, Gosler, for your message, Osterbridge was saying. Lord Captain Chu seems most relieved to have heard it. I think I will now rest and idly and sleep. Who is it, you say, who has some knowledge of medicine? The ship's carpenter? Here Osterbridge Hawsey rolled his eyes upward and shrugged his expressive shoulders. Dear me, at least to be a saw bones. He has a saw, he said disdainfully. And knows how to drive a nail into a coffin too, Miss Naster. Whined the beggar. Enough! cried Osterbridge in sudden anger. Fetch him at once and tell the cook as you pass the gallery. To earn the captain some plain hot broth, he is much fevered. The atmosphere seemed right to Chris for all he had to do. Without Claggett Shoes commanding and forbidding presence, the pirates would be in a turmoil. Chris returned to the higher rigging to wait until darkness should be more profound. It was not long before the tropic night fell, deeply blue in the first hours until the stars should give off their eye-clear light. As the ultra rolled and pitched over the sea far down beneath him, Chris clung to the rigging and took the chance of changing himself into his own shape. Then, with all the haste he could, he moved a hundred feet above the hard decks, up the masts and along the sails, setting the new knife gently here and there to part the fibers of the cloth. As he went, the lines were touched occasionally in vital spots. It took long, for it had to be done with care. Chris scarcely made a move without looking down to see whether the sailors might not have glanced up at the dusky, full-bellied sails, but they were weary after two such hard-filled days and soon fell asleep on the planks of the open deck. Only Simon Gosler hobbled in and out, watching a sailor here, stealing from another there, lifting his head slowly above the window of the captain's cabin to spy on what went on inside. Like a dark and malevolent spirit, Simon Gosler, crippled in thought and body, moved restlessly about the ship. Chris contemplated his task on the sails and rigging, and slipped down to hide behind the third mast as he looked out to see where Simon Gosler might be. He could see him nowhere, and holding his breath, stepped over as two sleeping pirates sprawled on their backs on the deck to reach the hatch of the hold. He had one last task to perform before leaving the vulture. That hatch top was open, laying back as before, and Chris, feeling some danger, changed to a mouse as he crouched on the top rung. Hesitating, sniffing the fetid air of the hold, he finally ran down the ladder edge. Then he seriously unimmed death at his foot in time to leap as far as he could. He reached the last few rungs of the ladder, for Simon Goster stood waiting at the bottom, armed with a club, which he brought down in a splintering crash on the wooden crossbars as the mouth ran past and left out of sight. Courses instantly filled the hot air like so many wasps. I mean, Osler thrashed about with the club, laying it about him on the floor, narrowly missing several times, and yelling at the top of his raucous lungs for companions to help him. In no time, figures carrying flaming torches clattered down to the hold, and Chris, his own shape regained, knew he would have to be quick as he had never been quick before. With a flick, the new knife was open in his hand, and the blade pressed with all his strength against the hull of the vulture. He was crowded into a corner as far as possible from the advancing row of torches and shouting men. 
Frantic rats, terrified by the flames of the torches and the vibrating noise, scampered over Chris's feet or ran up over his bending back and shoulders. But he did not move. The blade whirled in the stout wooden side of the vulture, but it seemed no time before the flicker and wavering red of the nearest torches sent their flares over him from a distance. Chris could make out the silhouette of hunching figures as the first black trickle of seawater pierced through the side of the ship and stained the dry planks. Still the boy pressed the knife on a moment more until the water was a steady spurt, wetting his hand with its coolness. Then as the torches sent their flames moving into the obscure corner where he had been, a fly soared up and out, over an empty metal plate and four dead rats, over the stooped, screaming figure of a hunchback and a scattered line of searching men out to the freshness of the night and the open sea. Only Osterbridge Hawsey, curious at the torches and shouting, looked out the cabin door in time to see a tiny boat scud past, back toward Tahiti. And only in his befuddled dreams did he puzzle over how the small craft could sail against the wind, or wonder how it could sail so well when it seemed made of rope. End of chapter 27